All right, well, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 is where we're going to be. If you have a seatback Bible, I believe you're looking in 980, somewhere around there, 83, I think, 983 for Ephesians 2. Um, as you're turning there, I'd like to thank everybody who helped out last week with decorating the church, getting that ready. Uh, the place looks great and festive and bright and warm and wonderful. Uh, I love this time of year and what our church looks like. Uh, around Christmas time. So thank you everybody who hung out and drank hot cocoa and helped decorate. Um, as we begin, as I, as I said earlier in the service, this morning is week one of Advent. For some of you, you don't know what Advent is. Uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about that before we jump in. Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus. Uh, it means coming. It has been used throughout history as part of the church calendar. Um, Originally, it was used as a time to celebrate the arrival of Jesus on earth and be a prep time for new baptisms that would happen in January of the new year. Baptisms would happen in January, so all throughout December, uh, those people getting ready to be baptized would be going through their preparations throughout this year. And over time, the focus kind of changed, kind of walked away from the baptism preparation. Um, you know, we still remember and identify and celebrate Christ's arrival. That is a large part of Advent of this season but now we also wait for his second coming. So really, Advent helps us to identify with those believers who originally waited for the Messiah. And in the same way, we wait for him now and long for him now. One of the traditions that has always been part of Advent throughout the years has been the wreath and candles. The wreath is made up of evergreen branches, reminding us of the everlasting God that we serve, even in the midst of this cold, wintry season. The candles remind us Jesus is the light of the world. His coming brings light in the darkness. And each candle has a different theme or idea attached to it. Hope, peace, joy, and love. The things that Jesus brings to us in his incarnation. And so as I said, we enter into this season of Advent, this season of waiting not waiting for his first arrival, that's already happened. We wait on Christ's return, on him coming back to reign and rule, to put an end to pain and sickness and death and sin. So the question becomes, what do we do while we wait? How do we pass the time? Well, one of the things that has always defined this season is music, is singing. The Christmas season is filled with singing. There's a station on the radio that just plays Christmas music. It's already been doing it for like a month, and it's going to continue all throughout December. We are at a time in history where, let's be honest, it's not popular to be a Christian. And yet, you can walk into businesses and coffee shops all over the country and hear gospel truth being proclaimed through Christmas music. Every year, popular artists release Christmas albums, and they aren't writing new songs. They are covering the classics, and in doing so, furthering the proclamation of the arrival of God in the flesh to earth in Jesus. And so as we enter into this Advent season this year, I thought it'd be interesting to look at famous Christmas carols. To look at famous Christmas carols and study the theology wrapped up in them. My hope is that this will help you open a door of conversation with a friend or family member who doesn't yet know Jesus. 
Now, as we begin, I want to be clear, this is not going to be a study of Santa or talking snowmen. We're not going to discuss that time your grandma was walking home on Christmas Eve and she got ran over by a reindeer. No, we are covering songs that focus on, declare the arrival of, and help us set our hope in Jesus. So that's where we're going to go this morning. We are going to begin this study looking at the famous song, O Holy Night. So that's the plan. I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. So please uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are good and you're good all the time. God, as we enter into this season where we slow down and we remember that we are waiting. God, it doesn't take us much to remind us that we live in a broken, fallen world. And every so often we need to stop and remember that something better is coming. Your Son is coming. Christ is coming to return to right wrongs and set Fix what is broken to redeem and restore and renew. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you speak to us. Help us to read and understand, to hear and to listen, to see and respond to what it is that is in your text. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to look at the song, Oh Holy Night. So I'm going to give you a little bit of history on this song before we actually jump in. Um, 1843, a small town in France, the small church that was in a small town in France, had their organ renovated. To celebrate this, a local poet and wine merchant was commissioned to write a poem. The man's name was Placide Capau, Capot. Using the Gospel of Luke as inspiration, he wrote a poem titled Midnight Christians. The poem was so well received, he then got a friend of his, Adolf Adam, to write music to go with the poem, and a few years later, in 1847, the song we know as O Holy Night debuted in the same small town it was written in. It was wildly popular throughout the Catholic Church, and so it was sung all the time everywhere. That is, until... Placide, who was, by all accounts, an atheist when he wrote it, officially and publicly joined the Socialist Party. Not only that, but the composer, Adolf Adam, was a person of Jewish descent, which means the song that he wrote music to, he didn't believe in the Savior that it was about. And so between all of these things, the church declared it was unfit for this song to be sung in church because of, and I quote, the total absence of the spirit of religion. I want you to keep that in mind as we walk through these lyrics. It wasn't until 1855 that the song would be translated into English by a man named John Sullivan Dwight, a minister and classical music critic. He was compelled by the line, chain shall he break for the slave is our brother. Dwight was fighting against slavery in America, and so he helped spread this song as a way to stand up against slavery. Later on in 1914, after this song has been out and popular around the world, in 1914, during World War I, there was what um, history refers to as the Christmas truce in the midst of of World War I, British and German soldiers temporarily put down their guns and exchanged gifts and shared peace between them. 
It is said that one of the first songs sung during the truce that Christmas was, O Holy Night. See, this song has a rich and long-lasting history, even though it was written and composed by two men who didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. But wrapped up in this song is the reminder of just how existence-changing it was that Jesus showed up in that night. The song begins, the stars are shining brightly. It's the night of our Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. The world stuck in sin and error. That has been us. That has been humanity since Adam and Eve ate the fruit when they were told not to eat it. Sin entered the world and chaos spread across every relationship and everything in creation is broken and cracked because of it. We have been stuck dealing with the reality of and consequences of sin since that time. And within that, there was always this pining, this longing within us. To pine means to have deep, heartbreaking longing for someone or something. And that's what the world was in for so long. God had promised a Messiah. After Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit, God promised that one would come to go to war with Satan. One who would come and right the wrongs that had happened. A chosen one to redeem and restore and renew what was destroyed by sin. And for generations, creation was pining for that one. And there were times throughout history it looked like the chosen one would never come. Malachi 4 Starting in verse 4 says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Those words in Malachi, those are the final words of the Old Testament. It ends with another promise of God moving on behalf of his people. He says he will send one like Elijah, who we know to be John the Baptist, to prepare the way before the day of the Lord, before Christ returns, shows up. And if you go into your Bibles and you go to the end of Malachi, you read those, those words in the end of Malachi, most likely in your Bible there's a page and it'll say just the New Testament. And you flip that page and then you get into Matthew. But that page that says the New Testament... That page covers 400 years of silence before Jesus shows up. There are no prophets. There are no judges. There are no Old Testament miracles. Just existence. Just living. 400 years, generation after generation, dies off. And it seemed all hope was gone. And God's people would never experience this Messiah that they had been promised. And then one night, one night a teenage girl gives birth to a baby and lays him in a lowly manger and everything changes. In him our soul finds its worth, is what the song says. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. 
for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. There is hope. Our soul finds its worth. There is rejoicing, even in this weary world, a new and glorious morning on the horizon. Something better has come. Something better is still to come again. It is in Jesus that our true identity, our true completeness is found. It is because of him we can stand before God, the father of all existence, and be counted as righteous. You see, in the arrival of Jesus to earth, we see just how valued we are in the eyes of God. We see our worth. John 3 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then he continues in 17, not as well known, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The soul finds its worth in the arrival of Jesus because we know how the story plays out. We know that he lives a perfect, sinless life. We know that he is abandoned and betrayed and killed. We know he rises again. Your value is shown in the fact that God sent his son to endure all that he went through on your behalf in your place. Look at the extent the Father has gone to to give you the chance to enter the family of God. That's where the soul sees its worth because of the extent God sent his son to die, to suffer and die for you. You can then see the worth you have in the eyes of God. I told you to turn to Ephesians 2 um, and Ephesians 2 is so deep and meaty and full. It is I can't wait. We're going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians 2 one day. But to sum up, Ephesians 2, the first nine verses, talk about us being helpless and hopeless, dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, because he is rich in mercy and kindness and love, because of Christ, we are raised up. It says we have been made alive. We have been shown grace and kindness, not because of us, but because of God's love for us. And then you get to verse 10, where it says we are his workmanship. We are the result of God's creative efforts. That word conjures up the idea of an artistic creation. That's what you are in the eyes of God, his artistic creation that he is still at work on. And speaking of artwork, um, some of you might have noticed it this morning, but if you haven't, after the service, you want to go to the back, the back wall, and there's a, there's a, a drawing that was done um, by our own Leslie Rico, uh, who all throughout this series, she's going to be doing a piece related to each song that we're going to look at each week. So she did a piece this morning uh, related to O Holy Night. Um, and these are going to be up. Throughout the Advent season, uh, I encourage you to go take a look at them, check them out. And this is really it is our hope and our desire to use this as a springboard to create a space for those who are artistically gifted, those who have some gifting in drawing, painting, sculpting, photography, whatever it is in, in the visual arts. We want to create a space for you to share your art with this community. 
and maybe even with the community at large. We got we got big plans. But what we want to do going forward is give you the space to create. And so sometimes that might be connected to the sermon series, like like what Leslie's doing now. Sometimes it might just be, hey, you made something beautiful and wonderful. We want to display that and give you a chance to share your heart behind it. We want to create a space where those who have been gifted and given talents by God can use those gifts and talents to bless the community around them. So if that's you, if you have a longing to do that, if you have a desire to do that and pursue that, um, talk to me, talk to Leslie, because this is something that we're still kind of building, but, but want to make this part, a regular part of who we are as a church. So Leslie, thank you for, for what you're doing now. And uh, I'm excited to see where this takes us as a church. The reality that you are God's workmanship This reality should cause in us, as the song says, a thrill of hope. Hope that God's not done with you yet. Because God's still at work in you, still cultivating, still transforming, still carving, still sculpting. It should cause us to rejoice even in the midst of the weariness of this world because the creator of all existence knows you, loves you, and is making you more and more into his image and likeness. There is, in fact, a new and glorious morning on the horizon. The day the sun rose after Christ was born, whether or not the world knew it, the world was different. It was forever changed. And for us, in this season of waiting, in our Advent, we wait for that new day to come when Christ has returned, reigning and ruling over all creation. Song goes on and talks about how The wise men come being led by the star. And there's a line that says, The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger. In all our trials, born to be our friend, he knows our need. To our weakness, he is no stranger. Humility and meekness. This is what Christ showed in coming to earth. His arrival set up the tone for what the years of his life going forward would play out like. We just got done studying the book of Mark, in which Mark makes a a lot of emphasis on the fact that Christ is the suffering servant, that he has come to seek and save and serve the lost, the weak, the broken. And that's Jesus' life, right? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And it begins, it's laid out in front of us by the way he is born to Mary and Joseph, a couple of nobodies from the middle of nowhere who don't even have a room, so they are in the stables. Christ is born and laid in a manger, the king of kings laid in a manger. And then he lives a full and complete life because he was fully and completely human. He did not ignore or seclude himself from humanity. He experienced all of it. He lived, he learned, he had to grow in understanding and wisdom. He had to learn how to walk, talk, eat. He had to do all those things. Not only does Christ know our struggles and weaknesses because he knows all things, but he also experienced them himself. 
The song says to our weakness, he is no stranger. He knows what it's like to live in this broken world because he did it himself. He is intimately involved in our lives, working in and through us at all times. God is not a distant, disconnected, disinterested being. He sees, cares, and can empathize and sympathize with us in our struggles and temptations. Because of this, our King of Kings is not only the humble servant who came to seek and save and suffer for us, but he is also trustworthy and dependable. He has shown time after time in our lives, in and through history, that he keeps his word, that we can go to him. Yes, he was the humble suffering servant born to a couple of nobodies from the middle of nowhere, but he is also the king of kings in control of all things. And in that reality, we can rest because our king is good and holy and righteous. He is trustworthy and dependable and wants what is best for us. He is a king who will, who did lay down his life for us. And this king who reigns and rules chooses to be a friend to us sinners in all our trials, born to be our friend. John 15, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus calls you friend. Again, he didn't avoid or ignore the creation he entered into. He fully embraced it. He did so with a purpose and a plan. Go back to Ephesians 2, jump down to verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He has brought us close He has, the word is, reconciled us. At one time, we were outside of the family of God. We were separated from the family of God. See, throughout history, pre-Christ, it was God and the Israelites, God and the Jewish people, and that's it. But then Jesus shows up and changes that and opens it and makes it a way for all people to be welcomed into the kingdom of God, to the family of God, brought near to God. There are some here today that might still be not near but far from God because you have not been brought into the family of God. I'm thankful that you're here. It's great that you're here. I hope that you're asking questions. I hope that you're getting stirred up by some of these things. And I hope you will continue to pursue Him. Because if you show up, if you pursue Jesus, you show up and ask Him to show up, He's going to. See, God didn't have to save us. He didn't have to welcome in all people into the family of God. But he chose to do that, and he chose to save us, and he chose to love us, and he chose and showed up and chooses to show up and show us this great love he has for us by sending Jesus to die for us, to save us and bring us in as his daughters and sons. And as his children, 
See, when you have kids, you want to teach them how to act. You have to teach them how to interact. And verse 3 of our song of O Holy Night starts with, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chain shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. He taught us to love one another. First John tells us that we love because he loved us first. We can love others because we know what love looks like. We can show grace to others because we experienced it. We can for- forgive others because we have been forgiven. Christ has taught us by example how to love and care for one another. Even the law was given by God for, out of love for his people. It was a way for the people of God to live and exist in a broken world in a way that would point all the other nations around the world to him. It gave them a way to live in a sinful world. God has always been about showing love for his people and because that's who he is. Since sin first entered into the world, that sin and error that we'd sat pining in, ever since then, God has been putting things together to provide for us the peace that was taken from us by sin. Jump back into Ephesians, go to verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Peace. His gospel is peace. The good news is that Christ brings peace. Peace found in Christ. Peace through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Peace is not just the absence of war, but it seeks the other's well-being. Peace is this concept. It is this thing that we long for, that we ache after that we desire, that we want inner peace. We want peace within our minds. We want peace within our own self. We want peace within our family, peace within relationships, peace at work. This is the time of year where we hear peace on earth, goodwill towards men. The reality is true peace can only be found in God. What this means is that the peace of Christ can never be separated from God himself. That if you want peace to rule in your life, God must rule in your life. Christ must rule in your life. God's purpose is not just to give you peace separate from himself. His purpose is to give you peace by being the Lord of your life. Christ came to offer us peace with God So that we are not in conflict. We are not at war with God. We are not rebels and enemies against God. But rather we, and we are not separated from him. But rather we are safe. We are complete. We want and need for nothing because God provides. Christ came to give us that peace. And he brought about that peace through going to war with Satan. Going to war with sin on our behalf, Christ came to give us peace by going to war with Satan and defeating him at the cross by raising from the dead. 
chain shall he break, for the slave is our brother. Christ is the chain breaker. The one who ends oppression, the one who restores what is broken, the one who brings justice, who renews what has been lost, who redeems what has been neglected and left to die. He does this to bring us peace, peace with God, so that we are not against him but are protected by him. And this peace offered to us through Christ is not for later. It isn't just because and just because we're in the season of waiting, we have to wait and long after this peace and we'll never have it or we won't have it until we're dead and in God's presence. No, peace with God happens now. It starts when you accept Christ's sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. I mean, yes, as part of Advent, we wait for the second coming of Christ. We wait for that day when there will be total peace, but that doesn't mean we can't experience the peace of Christ now because through Jesus our relationship with God is one of peace and through that you can have peace then even with yourself you see in Christ's arrival everything changes even our own inner being changes he is the fulfillment of a promise thousands of years in the making he is the embodiment of justice love Grace, mercy, humbleness, meekness on earth. The king of kings allowed himself to live as a nobody carpenter, to be born in a stable, laid in a manger, and to experience all that life had to offer, good and bad. And as he lived this life, as you read through the Gospels, he gives us these glimpses, these moments of what it would be like when the kingdom of God is fully here. What it will be like at the end of our Advent, when we are done waiting, when he is reigning and ruling, having put a final end to sin and the consequences that go with it. And so we see him heal, and those who are lame walk, and those who are blind see, and those who are deaf hear, those who are hungry are fed, those who are thirsty can drink. All of these things, all of these consequences of sin, Jesus gives us these moments, these glimpses that says, this is what it's going to be like when the kingdom of God is fully and completely here. He showed in his actions and taught in his words what God has always said. Love God, love people. Jesus came to go to war with Satan and to deliver us peace with God. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But this almighty God loves you so much and offers you a new relationship with him and with creation, and even within yourself, if you will admit your need for him, put your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and your hope for eternity. See, when we step back even just a, a little bit, and you begin to look at all that Christ is and all that he came to do, it is no wonder that even the atheist writer of this song would declare that the only right and proper response to Jesus, as he says in the song, Fall down on your knees, bow down before your king, praise his name forever. Because it truly was a holy, set-apart kind of night when Christ entered the world, because at that moment everything changed. So then if that's true, if that's the reality, have things changed for you? Does the reality of God's love manifested in the arrival of Jesus in the flesh matter to how you live? As you wait, as you experience Advent, 
May we seek to live in response to that holy night. Let's pray.